This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30 again. So last week, we had church in the park. It was a ton of fun. Uh, the week before that, I taught on Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 through 30, but where I really oriented the lion's share of my effort was in verses 28 through 30, which are this like epic invitation from the Lord Jesus to come to him with our weariness and with our burdens and to find rest for our souls and to take his yoke upon ourselves and to, because his burden uh, the way that he lives life, the way that he carries our sin and shame and fear and guilt is, it's, it's, it's light. Uh, his burden is easy. Um, if, you, uh, if you did not hear that message, I want, I've never actually done this. I want to encourage you to go back and to listen to it on our podcast. I'm not about self-promotion and all of that, but I've heard from many of you that it was powerful and that it was refreshing um, to hear and to see the heart of God. But what I said at the very beginning of that message was, man, verses 25 and 26 and 27 are just thick with meaning and I wanted to spend some time there, but I decided to focus the emphasis on verses 28 through 30. And so I did that. But this week, I want to come back to this passage and I want to spend some time digging into more of what's here. And those early verses in this passage can be easy to miss because of um, they, they come before this massive invitation from the Lord Jesus that, that, that nourishes us. So let's read the scriptures. Matthew chapter 11. There's a black Bible around the room. Turn your Bible. Bible on if you've got one in your pocket or grab one of those black Bibles. Let's, let's go. Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God, the words of our Christ. Uh, Jesus, would you, uh, would you open our eyes to see the reality of your goodness? Would you open our eyes to see you and our Father sharing the same will, equal in your openness to us? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to understand what's being taught this morning, to understand what is in your word? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever seen uh, Trevor or I do an exercise that we call Root to Fruit or the Three Trees, we use um, four questions that are really easy to remember. And this is a good way to orient yourself to Scripture anytime you're reading it. The four questions go like this Who is God? What has He done? Who are we? What do we do? Two categories, God and us. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What do we do? Um, here is a principle to remember any time that we approach the scriptures. 
uh, always, always, always be on the lookout for who God is and for what he has done before you're on the lookout for what the scriptures say to you or about you or, or humanity. The Bible is always, 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 always the story of God before it is the story of humanity or us. Uh, you want an example? I'll give you one. First four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. The second to last verse in all of the scripture, Revelation 22, verse 20. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. The scriptures from beginning to end and everything in between them are primarily the story of God. And so that's how we should read the scriptures, come to see who God is, what he's done. And yes, to see then in light of that, who are we either with Christ or apart from Christ and, and what do the scriptures call us and how do they call us to respond? Now, um, I have a handful of close friends who, uh, who, who don't know their fathers. Um, well, these men have managed well and have uh, been able to overcome an incredibly consequential challenge. Uh, not knowing their father, not having their father close by has profoundly affected them. I know a handful of guys, too, who know their fathers and who uh, have had their, their fathers live in, in a present way with them. And this blessing for these men profoundly affects them. In a similar way, not the same way, but in a similar way, Jesus is signaling here in this passage that we just read that there are two groups of people. There are some people who know their creator, father, and there are some people who do not know their creator and their father. And so what Jesus is doing with this passage is giving us a big and accurate insight into who our creator, who our father is. God, um, like a diamond, has many facets. Uh, theologians will call these these different ways of, of God, they'll call them attributes. So we'll, we'll come to the scriptures and we'll learn about our father. We'll learn that he is powerful. We'll learn, we'll learn that he is father. We'll learn of his wrath. We'll learn of his justice. We'll learn of his goodness. We'll learn of his mercy. We'll learn of his knowledge. We'll learn of his graciousness, of his goodness. We'll learn all kinds of different aspects of who God is. And he is one. He is not opposed to himself. He's unified and integrated. But God is also, he's, he's complex. He's fully knowable. Full stop. Fully knowable. You and I can fully know our creator. And yet, it's impossible for us to fully know everything about him. There is mystery in the mind of God and in the way that God relates to his people. And we have to be, honestly, we have to be okay with the tension that the scriptures create because it's often around every corner in, in the scriptures. So um, here is what I, I want us to do this morning. I want us to let us, let Jesus teach us this morning. I want us to let Jesus teach us this morning. Here's, here's the big idea uh, today. Come, Church, I'm asking, the Father and the Son are asking you, more importantly, to come and behold your God who reveals himself. 
God who speaks and to show your trust by coming near to him. That's how we show our trust. Our tendency is is to shy away from him and to keep him at a distance. But what he is asking for us and, and from us is to come to him, to rush literally into his presence. So I want to just steer the, the, or, the, the order of our, um, this message this morning through a handful of questions. And I want to ask questions that the text directly answers. So number one, who does Jesus declare our father to be? In verse 25, who does Jesus declare our father to be? At that time, um, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What, is, what does it mean? I want to I just move into some of these words, some of these nouns, some of these descriptors for who God is. Jesus calls him Father. Jesus calls him Lord and says that he's Father and Lord of something, heaven and earth. So uh, this word under Father is the Greek word pater. I'm not pronouncing it as a Greek would pronounce it, but it's the word where we get our, uh, our word paternal. Uh, it, it's a straightforward word. The word means a male parent or someone who produces offspring, who is made in a similar image, somebody who is ultimately responsible for the well-being of their family. Now, in Jesus's day, it was problematic for the religious folks when Jesus would call God his father. It's not that Israel didn't think of themselves as children of God. They did think of themselves as children of God, but often the way that they did that is they they thought of the nation of Israel kind of on the whole as the children of God. They didn't think of themselves so much individually as children with a father who has drawn near to them as individuals. And so in their, um, in, in their, in, from the good place, the good motivation to to revere God and to treat him with utmost respect, they actually kept him distant and they would distance themselves from him and keep him at a distance. Even today we see um, we see practicing Jews, anytime they write the name of God, they, they will not write the name Yahweh ever. Uh, they will put a dash in between some of the letters. They will not write the, the title God anywhere. Um, they will rather write G-D to signify God. They don't want to write the name of God and so profane in their view his name. And so they would keep him distance and keep their distance. Now, I want my kids to respect me. I even want my kids to, to fear me in a healthy way as their father. But I do not want my kids to be afraid of me. I, I do want my kids to respect me. I don't want them to live distant from me. They get in trouble, they have needs, if they have joys. I want them to come and to share those things with me. I want them to call me daddy. I don't want them to call me father or sir or Jared unless we're joking around. And then it's funny, but I, I don't want that to be their primary way of titling me and, and relating to me. Now, Jesus came near to his father and he revered his father and he respected his father, our father, by, by coming near to him. That's what the father wants. He wants us to come. He is 
paternal. He is in the most legitimate sense, our father, our caretaker, the creator of our souls, the lover of who we are. Second, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord, of heaven and earth. Lord is this Greek word kyrios, K-Y-R-I-O-S, and it's a straightforward word. It's not simplistic, but it is straightforward. Uh, It means master, and it speaks of someone who has great authority over whatever domain they are in charge of. Uh, The New Testament alone uses this word, Lord, um, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Anytime you see that in your New Testament, it uses this word 638 times in the New Testament. So it is everywhere. And the scriptures use this word to speak of the Father. They use the word, this word to speak of Jesus. And they use this word to speak of the Holy Spirit as well. But predominantly, this word kyrios is used to speak of the Lord Jesus. Anytime we see it in the New Testament. However, here, Jesus himself is using this word to speak of his father. He's calling him master. So anytime you come across this word, Lord, in the scriptures, it is not a throwaway word. It is a powerful, powerful word. Third, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of what? Lord of heaven and earth. Theologians call this a a merism or a merism. This is a literary device that is something that communicates completeness or totality. Uh, I'll give you an example, uh, high and low. When we use the phrase high and low, like I searched high and low, but I couldn't find the binky. Young parents, you know like the danger zone that you're in when you search high and low, but you can't find the binky. It doesn't, we're not just saying that we searched above us or we searched below us. What are we saying? We search to our right and we search to our left and we search before us and behind us and above us and below us. We searched where? Everywhere. So when Jesus is using this word, heaven and earth, or when the scriptures use the phrase heaven and earth, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a a merism which signifies everything. Not just the heavens, not just the earth, but everything. So when Jesus says, I thank you, Father, one who is close to me and fully knowable, Lord, Master, the one who has divine, incredible awe-inducing authority over not just a few things, but over heaven and earth, meaning everything. When the scriptures use heaven and earth, they mean everything. Now, what does Jesus thank our Father for doing in verses 25 and 26? Um, Depending on your theological perspective, I think this is where we get into some territory that can make us a bit uncomfortable, can make us... uh, mad, depending on a stream that you've grown up with in, like theologically, church-wise, or people that you have encountered, or m- might make you just feel confused or delighted, or, and, and really everything in between. Now, some, some read, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. Jesus has been teaching about the coming kingdom I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I think some of us, it's been my experience personally, and also with some of you, some of us read this and we we say right right away, like, wait, 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 wait. No, 
this does not match up with my idea of who God is. This does not match my, I don't, I don't believe in a God who would hide himself from some people. I don't believe that. I don't buy it. Say, God hides revelation of himself from some people and reveals himself to other people. When we read this passage in a straightforward way, yes, that's exactly what this passage is teaching. That's exactly, seems to be what Jesus is saying here. And so I want us to dive in. First, I want us to notice Jesus's posture. He says, first words out of his mouth, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from the wise and understanding. We'll talk about who that is and revealing them to little children. He's not pushing back on the father. He's not questioning the father. He's not shut down before the father. He's saying, literally, I am grateful that this is your way. And then he'll go and he'll follow that up in verse 27 and he'll say, for such was your gracious will. It can be confusing. It can make us uncomfortable. Uh, The Bible, the scriptures, nowhere teach that our father is cruel So when we read, when we see in this text that it pleases God our Father to hide things from the wise and understanding, we have to ask a question, what is this saying about who the wise and understanding are here? Why does it please our Father to hide himself from the wise and and understanding? The wise and understanding in Matthew's gospel are those who are refusing Jesus. Those who are denying him, denying his lordship, denying that he is Messiah. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. I've been wrestling with this phrase just as I've kind of wordsmithed it over the week. Just do I believe this? Yes. Yes, I do. God takes pleasure in frustrating the the worldly wisdom of those who are sinfully arrogant. God takes pleasure in frustrating the worldly wisdom of those who are sinfully arrogant. A prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, he's well known. He says, the Lord says through him, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Or Job, Job 37, God does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Or Jeremiah chapter 8, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Or our New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Based on the context of this verse, and verses 25 through 27, Jesus is using wise and understanding here to describe a group of people in an ironic way. He's talking about the the religious leadership of his day. So we've got to like be clear about our thinking here. Does God love wisdom and understanding? Yeah, he's the author of it. He's created both. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 2, like we are urged to search for wisdom as if it's 
hidden lost treasure, gold, silver, search for it, sacrifice for wisdom. God loves wisdom and understanding. But in this case, the wise and understanding are those who have claimed to have both, but who fail to live up to their reputation and who fail to live up to their responsibility. So if anybody should recognize Messiah, it's the religious leaders of the day. These are the ones who have been trained by their forefathers to see the Messiah on the, script, on the pages of Scripture. They're the ones who come from a long generation of people aching to see Messiah come. If anyone should recognize the Christ, it should be them. So what, in the, so what, is, what is Jesus doing with this? What is Matthew doing with this text? I, I, I seem to believe that Matthew is leading his audience, us, the original audience, the Jewish people of the first century, and everyone in between, he's leading us into tension. He's leading us into more tension. Do you ever feel tension when you read the scriptures? Do you ever feel tension when you see the gentleness of Jesus and then you see him throwing down with people saying, woe to you? Like, do you, do you feel tension when, when you, when Jesus says things like, don't hinder the children from coming to me, but he rolls into the temple with a whip of cords that he created with his own hands. That takes time. There's some premeditation in that. And he flips over the tables of these money changers and he cracks this whip and he chases all of these people out of this massive temple complex. Do you feel tension when you wrestle with the sovereignty of God and the plan and the purposes of God and the scriptures that are consistently also aiming at human responsibility? We must respond. We must respond. We must respond. Do you feel tension? I feel a ton of tension as I read the scriptures. One day I like it, the next day I don't. It's what it feels like often when I'm reading, when, when I'm reading the Bible. Now, I think that Matthew here is leading, and he, he does this all over the pages of his gospel. He's leading us into tension. So it's okay when you and I feel tension with the scriptures, when we're trying to reconcile things, when they create an ache in our gut to know the answer, and we feel like we, it's oil in the hands. We just can't quite grasp it. That is okay. Matthew here is leading us into tension around the holiness of God and the depraved, God-rejecting reality of humanity us. I want to be really blunt, and I'm not going to ask your permission to say this, but I want to prep you. No one here deserves life with God. Not me, not you, none of us. No one deserves life with God. Every single person in this room and outside of this room has disregarded him and has broken his law. All of us, many times over. The little babies in the nursery that can't even verbalize their words but are like, you know, and, and pinch. Like that, uh, that nature is in the human heart. They didn't learn it from mom and dad because mom and dad aren't pinching each other. It's in the human heart. 
No one here deserves the death of the Son of God in our place. We cannot lay claim to it. Like, you owe me your life for mine. You owe me your righteousness for my guilt. How absurd does that sound? A human being saying that to a holy God. None of us can demand it. Every one of us, Romans teaches, every one of us has fallen short of God's standards. Everybody here, like sheep, without a fence, have wandered off. And yet, for some reason that we, I, cannot quite figure out, we have come to know and value Jesus Christ as God's Son who takes away our sin and makes us right with God and reconciles us to him. And some of us in this room, we look to him in faith and we depend on him for our future. But some of us still refuse to come to him even though he stands right at the door of our life saying, open the door and let me in. And he calls us to seek and to ask and to knock. He has come to you, but you refuse to come to him. Can I urge you to lay down your self-sufficiency? Can I urge you to lay down your arrogance? Can I urge you to lay down your obstinance, your half-heartedness when it comes to him? Can I urge you to lay down your addictions, your temptations that are getting the best of you, the the idols that you, you worship, the things that you worship to give you meaning or to create safety or to create a sense of worth or just to satisfy you in the moment? Can I urge you to lay those things down that do not deliver you and that in fact have a heavy, heavy, heavy burden on you day after day and to bow your knee before the only one who can deliver you? Can I urge you to consider Jesus Christ as the one who takes away your sin and who works with you and walks with you through the rest of your life. He is not a God who has died and been buried. He's a God who has died at the hands of lawless men, us, and been buried. But history teaches that Jesus, the only human, has risen from the grave on the third day. If that is true, then the reality of our world changes because that breaks our understanding of how the world works. We look at the world and go, everybody dies, but Jesus Christ, if he has died but risen, he can never die again. And if that is what the scriptures teach, then that means that he is still alive. And that means that he is speaking. And that means that he is ruling. And that means that he is truly, as the scriptures teach, at God's side. You might ask, I want to come, but is it the will of God for me to be in his family? There's just this nagging voice that says, no, no, it's okay for them, but not you. Sure, like 
they seem like they've got it together. We have this view of uh, we can come to God if we have things together, but the scriptures teach nothing of the sort. The scriptures teach that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray and wandered. And while we were yet sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ gave him his life for us in our place. And so the gospel teaches us that in our sin and in our folly and in our shame and in our ugliness and in our woundedness and in our pain to run, run, run to the Father. That's what the scriptures teach and that's what the gospel teaches. And so Jesus reveals that it is the gracious will of our Father to show himself to the little people. Little children here doesn't just mean little kids. Little children, this is a, a, a phrase and a term used in Jesus' day to talk about the ones who were disregarded. Kids were not elevated in their society like they are in our society. Little children are little ones. And so Jesus reveals that it is the gracious will of our Father to show himself to the undeserving, to show himself to the humble, to show himself to the unlearned, to show himself to the empty-handed ones who come to Jesus with nothing in the hand, but only the opportunity to receive him. So here, it is our Father's gracious will that, the, that we, the empty-handed ones, would come to him, would come to Jesus, his son, in order to not just have our hands filled, but to have our hearts filled, to have our hearts transformed, and to have our hearts made new into the likeness and resemblance of Jesus Christ himself. Here's a third question. When we come to know Jesus, do we come to know our Father too? Jesus and the Father divided in the scriptures. It seems that the Father's will is a little heavier handed than the Son's will at times. As we're reading the scriptures, how do we reconcile two, Father, Son? We're not talking about the Holy Spirit today, but He's in the equation today. Three, all one, unified in intent, unified in glory, unified in community. When we come to know Jesus, do we come to know our Father too? I'm going to jump into another gospel here. The Gospel of John, um, chapter 14, verse 9 says, "Whoever has Jesus is saying this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's almost like Matthew got a bit tired at this point, and he's like, I'm going to just jump over to John's gospel and just swipe a few lines from John. This feels, as Matthew is saying this in Matthew chapter 11 here, it feels a bit like he ripped off some of these themes from John. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made God known. Or John 6.45 and 46, it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Not that anybody has seen the Father, except he, he's talking about himself, he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Or John 7, 29, I know him, the Father, for I come from him. Or maybe as explicit as it gets, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Does it get any more explicit than that? It doesn't. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. So back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
the authority of Jesus. This is speaking of the authority of Jesus Christ here. And it, it's, a, it's a key feature of Matthew and it will continue on. We'll see it kind of come to this crescendo at the end of Matthew in, at the, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptizing them into the name of the Father and into the name of the Son and into the name of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's where Jesus' authority here crescendos. But it's already being teased out. We saw that as Jesus sent his disciples out on mission in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has been teaching with authority and healing with authority. And then he sends his disciples out with his teaching authority, with his message, and with his healing authority. And he says, now go and do likewise. And they come back saying, can you believe that we have been able to get in on this? Jesus will delegate that authority and it has come to us in history. Only a person with real authority can give a commission like Jesus did and have that commission, go to all of the nations and baptize them and teach them, have it last 2,000 years and 80 generations. Think about that. A Middle Eastern peasant, essentially, has such an effect on human history that we measure time by his birth. Hospitals and the whole modern medical industry has been started by his followers. No one in all of history has the kind of authority that Jesus Christ has. How? He's born to a single mom in Galilee, this no-name hick town in the Middle East. The implication, as Jesus is saying here, I and the Father are one in this passage, is that not only is Father Lord of heaven and earth, but Jesus is saying here that I am one with the Father in authority, which makes him a co-equal Lord of heaven and earth. Also, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. When Jesus talks about um, knowing our Father, it, it trips me up a bit because our English word know, can, it, it's got a range of senses. It can be pretty muddy. So what do you mean that only Jesus knows the Father and only the Father knows him? Don't, don't the disciples already know Jesus at this point? They're living with him. Does, doesn't Israel already know Yahweh, the God of Israel at this point through the temple sacrifices and temple rituals and the law handed down to, by Moses? Don't they already know the Father? Yes, they do, but not in, the, in an intimate way that a father knows his son and his son knows his father. I have a son and he and I know one another, really, he's pumping his fists. I'm, I hope that continues. Um, he and I know each other really, really well. We, we, we share a likeness. We share a last name. None of you have told me to go brush my teeth in the morning because I got the stank breath like this guy has or have told him to do the same because I've gotten a whiff of his. Like we have lived intimately with one another in a household over time and we have a real distinct knowledge and care of one another. Now, this Greek word translated know means perceives. It means recognizes. Nobody recognizes. Nobody perceives. Nobody understands the Father like I do. 
or me like the Father does. Jesus is speaking here of familial or family intimacy. The Father and the Son have this kind of close relationship that only family members have. The New Bible Commentary says it really well. The the Father and Son relationship, Jesus and the Father, it's an exclusive relationship, and yet it's one to which we may be admitted. We get brought into this relationship that Father and Son have, but not by cleverness. I'll add intellect. I'll add earnestness. I'll add working really hard to get in. We're not invited into this relationship by cleverness. We're invited into this relationship by revelation. The New Bible Commentary says, the initiative remains with the Father who reveals the meaning of Jesus' ministry, and the initiative remains with the Son who reveals the Father. So, as Jesus comes in Matthew eleven twenty eight, saying, come to me, it's only by responding po- positively to Jesus' offer that we come into relationship with God. I'm going to quote some words of the great theologian Trevor Zychek from Youth Camp this weekend. The way to know God is super, super, super duper narrow. It's narrow. It's through Jesus Christ. He would say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Frederick Bruner says, the classic Christian conviction is this, and we'll land here. The classic Christian conviction is this. There is no knowledge anywhere of the Father that is not mediated through God the Son and that is not brought into the individual heart through God the Holy Spirit. If God is the God revealed in Scripture, Christians feel they must say these things. What things? No one really knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Christians must hold as loyally and as tenaciously to our, to our confession of this one mediator as the ancient people of God before us held loyally and tenaciously to their confession of the one God. God may reveal himself to whomever God chooses, but we still believe, instructed by this text, that only the Son makes the Father known anywhere. We leave to God his secrets We preach Christ. And the Christ we preach bids us to come to him, to cast our cares on him, for him to carry our burdens, for him to carry our our, our weariness, for him to to, to graciously give us his yoke, that that, um, working tool that would Two animals would be fastened to, one in this side of the yoke, the other in this side of the yoke. Jesus says, I'm wearing the yoke. Come and slip into this side. Let me do the hard labor. Let me teach you how to do the labor. Come to me and learn my way of life. Come to me and find rest for your, not just your bodies, not just your circumstances, not just your future, but your souls. Meaning that we come to him to find rest from trying to prove ourselves to God. Trying to find salvation in our bank account or in the children that we're raising 
or in our religious work. There's so many different ways that we try to prove ourselves to God, and yet Jesus is saying, come to me empty-handed. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He will not turn us away. How do we know who knows Jesus then? More importantly, how do we know that we know Jesus? Three words distinguish those who know Jesus and the Father and those who don't. Come to me. Jesus reveals his heart in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, which is one with the Father's heart. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Four questions. Who is God? What has he done? God here is one who gives rest. What has he done? He gives rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. God is one who teaches his people. What is he like? He is gentle and humble in heart. What does he do? He gives us rest for our souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? I'm one who must come to him and learn from him. What do I do? Just that. Our work is to tenaciously come to the Father, come to the Son, and come to the Holy Spirit to find rest for our souls. Father, we, uh, <clears throat> I submit myself to you. I have no idea where this teaching lands this morning, and you know every heart and every individual circumstance today. And so I ask that you would, that you would speak to your people abundantly and graciously, that where my words have not tied up conclusions, where my word has introduced more tension, if it's contrary in any way, to what you want your people to know this morning, would you speak loudly to the hearts and the heads in the room? And where my human words have been accurately representing the scriptures, representing your heart, would you make sense of what has been heard this morning? Then would you ratchet up the temperature of our worship and our response to you today? And not just today, but into Monday and throughout the week, would you create a hunger in your people to know you, to tenaciously study and devour and bring your word into our minds and uh, submit ourselves to the scriptures? Lord, would you rescue those who are outside of your family this morning? And would you reassure all of those who are part of your family this morning? Would you, would you save? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.